have a Bible on page 517 of the Bibles underneath your chair, you can find John chapter 2. I thought I could preach with a cough drop in my mouth, but it's not working. Now my fingers are sticky. This is all kinds of problems up here today. Um, If you're new to the Bible, the book that we're working our way through is called John, named after the man who wrote it. He was a contemporary of Jesus. There's lots and lots and lots of opinions about Christ. And yet, there's only four documents in existence that were written by contemporaries of Jesus who knew him well or knew people who knew him well and wrote within a very short period of time about his life. Those four books are all in the New Testament, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so what we're doing together right now as a church is we get together, we sing Scripture, we pray about Scripture, we visit with one another about the truths of Scripture, and we open up the Bible to hear what God would say to us through John. Now, John wrote for a particular reason, and on the screen you'll see what that reason was. Towards the end of the book, he says this, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, meaning the book of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's claim is that you, if you will believe the message that he shares, then there's a certain power in it, not because of John, but because of God, and that you can be given life. So he's very upfront that that's why he's written. And uh, I share the same objective as we open the book together. My hope is to uh, persuade you that in Jesus there is life. Now in the end, no human being, however smart they are, can persuade another person that Jesus is the Christ and that life is found in him. That must come from God. And so that's why we start always before we lead into preaching with prayer, asking God to speak, because there's supernatural things that have to happen. I believe this not because I'm a pastor, but I'm a pastor because I believe it. And so as I've prayed for you this week, I hope that what will seem like a very odd, kind of obscure, what is this really about? And how could it possibly impact my day kind of message would actually be life-changing for you. So we'll be in John chapter 2, down in verse 12. So I'd invite you to follow along with me. John 2, verse 12. After this, he, this is Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeon, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, for they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Maybe you've read or seen the movie, the famous series Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis. In the third book, there's a moment in which this passage is, in a way, referenced. Lucy and Edmund come across a large, grassy field. Now, we, of course, have to imagine that because we live in Phoenix. So imagine, if you will, there's a large, grassy field. Everywhere you look is brilliant green, except right in the middle. Right in the middle of this field is something white. And so Lucy and Edmund work their way toward that white spot, trying to figure out what it is. And eventually they get close enough to see. It's a lamb. They get even closer out of curiosity. And yes, it gets weirder. The lamb talks. So they get in a lengthy, meaningful conversation. The conversation is about how to get to the land of Aslan, which is a symbol for heaven. Now, as the lamb is talking, something really incredible happens. Let me read a quote. C.S. Lewis writes, As he spoke, this is the lamb, as he spoke, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold, and his size changed, and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. That scene evokes wonder. It ought to also invoke reflection. You see, in the Bible, the Lamb of God is also the Lion of the tribe of Judah, both of which referred to Jesus. One pastor put it this way, qualities we consider to be Lamb-like, gentleness and meekness, are indeed in Christ, but so are the regalness and ferocity of a lion. Do you see Jesus like that? Do you have a category for Jesus as a lion? Well, in our passage today, we come down from the mountaintop miracle that Tad preached well last week of Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine. It's, it's a brilliant image of the power of Christ preparing God's people as the bride of Christ. 
And we've been washed clean and welcomed into the eternal heaven. Well, we, we descend from that wonderful passage into the muck and mire of the second half of the chapter. From the peaceful setting of a wedding feast to the chaos of Jesus swinging around a whip and yelling, things have quickly changed. So which one is it? Is Jesus the life of the party, John chapter 2, first half, or is he the party pooper, John chapter 2, second half? He's both. I think most of us today picture Jesus only in the first half of John chapter 2. We only think of Jesus as a lamb, gentle, loving, cuddly, soft. Took my daughter on a date yesterday and we were walking around in the mall, came to the pet store and I had asked her if she wanted to go to any stores and that's the one. So we went in and, oh, the little puppies are just so cute and cuddly. The contemporary image of Jesus is only that. It's as though we want to move through our Bibles and with a scissors in hand, take out sections like John 2, 12 through the end. Author Mark Galley, in a book called Jesus, Mean and Wild, says, I've heard many sermons from which I get the distinct impression that Jesus came not so much to proclaim the kingdom of heaven, but to bolster my sagging self-esteem. Contemporary Christianity has attempted to domesticate Jesus. But we're still stuck with the rest of the Bible. The same Jesus that turned this party that would have been a disaster into an object lesson of his power and grace is the same Jesus who with veins bulging from his neck and a red face overturned and ran out the greedy from the temple. If we really understood who we were dealing with, perhaps instead of bulletins and ballots when you came in today, we should have been giving uh, helmets and body armor. Because Jesus can inflict blows, and rightfully so. A cuddly Jesus that only comforts and never calls to repent, never says that's wrong, never calls you to do things you would not have done apart from him, is not a real Jesus. In our passage today, we find Jesus indignant. He goes all Jack Bauer on the people. Now picture the scene. He, he's made a whip. He's swinging it around. 
He's overturning tables. He's knocking down shade over the animals and chasing them out. He's slamming down bags of money on the ground. This is not the Jesus I grew up hearing. The question, of course, is why? Why is he so upset? Why is he so angry? And so what? What's the significance of this literally thousands of year old story in a place far from us in circumstances much different than we face? These are the things we'll consider today. But just to be clear, Jesus is gentle. Jesus is meek. There is no one more tender with your secrets, with your pain, with your mistakes. You can trust him. And yet, we work our way here through the Bible, passage after passage, because we will forever, at least in this life, be tempted to try to make a God of our own making. So today, we're going to find that this gentle Jesus is also a Jesus who gets rather upset, who has judgment, who hates sin. And who loves his father. So these two events, they look so different, don't they? I'm reconsidering the wisdom of giving Tad the easy one, the fun one, the party, and me getting this one. But in both texts, Jesus is showing who he is, what he cares about, what the father is like. So I hope, although this is not the dominant contemporary message about Jesus, that we will hear it nonetheless. So our first question, why was Jesus so angry? Honestly, it took me a while to uncover that. The text seems to very clearly say he was angry, but it requires some contemplation to understand why. Why is As Mark Galley put it, in this text, Jesus rather mean and wild. What's going on with him? I think we can summarize it in a sentence. Jesus was angry because God deserves sincere and unhindered worship. God deserves sincere and unhindered worship. Now, in the temple of all places, that ought to have been obvious. But in this spot, it was not. Now, we don't have a temple. We're not in Jerusalem. And as far as I know, there's not a Jew in the room. And so, our cultural experience could not be more different. And so, if you would be gracious toward me and give me a few minutes to try to explain what's going on in this passage. The physical building of the temple in Jerusalem was a representation 
of the very presence of God because God was there. In a way in which God doesn't dwell in a building anymore, He did at this point in history. So if you were a God follower in the first two-thirds of your Bible, and it was at a time in which the temple had been built and not destroyed, then the most precious place in all the universe for you would have been the temple. This would have been the spot you longed to be in, for it's here that God uniquely would make Himself known. Now, I recognize how odd that is for us, but that doesn't make it any less true. And so, let's try together to grapple with what that might have been like. And so that imagination you used earlier with grass, just use it now to imagine what it might have been like to live in a time in which there was a physical building, large one, that was filled with symbolism, far more than we could get to today. But at the heart of it was the very presence of God. At the dedication of this temple earlier in the story, back in 1 Kings, we read these words. And when the priest came out of the holy place, this is the, the innermost part of the temple, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. There had been a lengthy period of time in which as the Israelites moved from Egypt to the Promised Land, they had been guided in part by a cloud. That cloud was the presence of God, and now that cloud had filled the temple. The very glory of God was there. The temple was the physical location the Jews would go to to remember who God was, to reflect on what he had done, to repent, to offer sacrifices. It was overwhelmingly beautiful. There are ancient secular accounts of this temple and the way in which as you would come near to it, it would glow from the gold as the sun shone on it. We would consider it one of the wonders of the world. Incredible structure. It was Eden-like. A place of worship. A place of hope. A place where you'd go to meet with God. Now Jesus makes this journey from his home to Jerusalem. Why? Because that's what every good Jew would do. You would travel to Jerusalem for Passover. And as you climbed the hill up to Jerusalem, you would sing the songs of ascent, their portion of the book of Psalms. You'd do this in big, massive groups, understanding that following God is something we do together. So Jesus would have taken step after step after step, looking forward to worship in the temple hearing the sounds of people praising God. And yet when he got there, that's not at all what he found. 
It had become a place of business and chaos. Here's an artist rendition of what the temple would have looked like at this period of time. The tall structure in the middle was the Holy of Holies. This is the, the, the spot where the Ten Commandments were held, where the glory of God, was. that cloud, resided. And there's the outer part of the temple. And then if you see those little white specks all over the larger area, that's the courtyard. That would have been the scene in which we're reading about today. Now, you can't tell this, but this is an enormous place. If you go to Jerusalem today, none of that on the top is still there. But the outer wall is still there. Not all of it, but a small portion. Perhaps you've seen pictures of what's called the Wailing Wall. This is where Jews go today and they roll up little pieces of paper with prayers on them and stuff them in the cracks. Then they stand there and they pray that God would rebuild His temple. Because right now, where that Holy of Holies is, is a mosque, the second most famous mosque in the world. And so it's a sensory overload experience as you stand there by the wall and you hear Jews in Hebrew praying for God to come back and rebuild His temple. And you hear the call to worship in Arabic from the top. But the bottom part, the very corners of these walls are still there. I've stood next to them. And yes, I am a big, beastly man. I recognize this. But I stretch all the way out. And I cannot stretch to even one block the width. It's an enormous place. Would have been completely overwhelming. But as Jesus came there and entered that courtyard, expecting prayer. Instead, it was filled with greed. Now, if if you're here today and you're not a Christian familiar with the Bible, this is probably incredibly weird. You feel like you've stepped into a parallel universe, something more like a sci-fi fiction novel than church. Let me try to explain what's going on. The Bible teaches that all people everywhere, forever, have all stiff-armed God. In some way, shape, or form, we have said, God, I reject your good, sovereign, gracious rule. I push you away, Creator. And I will instead live as though I have control. I'm in charge. I'll do what I want. No two people do that in exactly the same way. But we, we are a diverse bunch, but we all share that in common. That's what the Bible calls sin. And God is so holy, so perfect. And He's created, although it doesn't feel like it, a world in which there is inherent justice, and in which He will right every wrong. And so the only way to be restored into right relationship with God is for that stiff-armedness, if you will, to be put to death. 
See, the wages of sin, the, the payment earned for sin is death. And so in the Old Testament part of the Bible, when someone would sin, then they would go to the temple. They would spend some of their hard-earned money to buy an animal. It had to be an animal with no blemishes. And then that animal would be taken to the altar. And I recognize this is graphic, but I made the mistake last gathering of saying no one in the room had plucked chickens. So I'll ask this time, any chicken pluckers in the room? Randy, you're the only one. There's no surprise, Randy is the odd man out. It's because you're the oldest one here? I don't think so. <laughs> um, uh. So for Randy, getting an animal and killing it isn't that odd. But to the rest of us, we go to the store to get our chickens. Someone else has done the catching and the plucking, right? But in this society, there was no fries. You, you grew your food. You tended your chickens. You grew your cattle. And so killing an animal wasn't strange, but killing an animal in order for that animal to serve as a substitute, dying in your place, it's blood run out to remind you that you deserved that death. Now that is rather unique. I'm about to go all jack by on you if you don't turn those out. <laughs> it was an amber alert? No? Yes? No. All right, let's pray for a moment. God, what an awful thing. We have just said that it doesn't appear like it, but you are a just God and a hold together a just world. And there are is times in which unjust things happen. Certainly a child being taken is despicable. Father, we pray right now for repentance for this person who has taken this child, that they would stop their car, that they would set this child free. God, we pray for that child that you would give him or her courage and that this would end even as we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were coming to the temple for Passover, and you were coming from a long ways away, it would be uh, completely impractical if you had come from Spain, say, to have carried Molly, your little lamb, on a leash. And so you would get to the temple and you would need to buy Molly. This is how this worked. But your money was dirty money. And so you had to exchange it for money that didn't work anywhere else. Money only at the temple. Holy money. And then you'd buy your lamb and you'd go through the procedure. This is what would have happened. But this was not supposed to have invaded the very place of worship. The money changers and those selling animals for sacrifice had choked out 
the worship in the temple. The, the greed had pressed in this most precious of all places. In other words, the temple had become just like everywhere else. Jesus reacted to this with holy indignation. He was outraged that his father's house had become like going to the mall. Instead of prayer and confession of sin and singing and sacrifices, there was the noise of commerce. In the middle of the business, there was no time to consider and pray and praise, which is what the temple was for. In the chaos of exchanging money and buying animals and giving an offering, there was no room to consider the substitutionary sacrifice that those animals would take. Instead, there was disregard for God. This most precious of all places in which God himself had dwelt became a place of utmost contempt. Now, at the end of the day, this story isn't about animals where, were where they shouldn't be and the exchanging of money was where it shouldn't have been. It's that those actions reveal the hearts of the people. They weren't really <laughs> there for God. This had become just what you do. But from the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus has always been passionate about God his Father receiving the glory that he's due. And people becoming genuine worshipers of God. That's what Jesus came for. And so, his power in the turning of water to wine is no different than his power in overturning the tables and chasing out the people. This is why he came. To turn rebels, sinners, into worshipers, even if they're in the place where one would most expect to have found genuine worshipers already. This is why Jesus was mean and wild, and it was a righteous, holy, just, for their own good, anger. Now, what's the significance of his anger for us today? Again, this is very much removed from our external experiences. But, brother and sister, friend, while the physical location has changed, the human heart remains the same. You see, God still deserves sincere and unhindered worship. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And while circumstances are different, we can turn holy things just as easily into objects of contempt. 
when you came to the worship gathering this morning, you weren't distracted by the noise of animals and the greed of money changers. You didn't have to worry about purchasing just the right animal, the one with no blemishes, in order to offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And none of us are exhausted having walked several days to get here. So all those things are different. But church can become just as thoughtless. As we sang today, let me speak to the Christians in the room. Brother, sister, as, as you sang, did you consider the richness, the truth of the words? Was it coming from a heart of gratitude that this God has in fact made himself known and that we have the joy of getting together to remember him? Or did you just mouth the words? As we prayed, did you think about God? Or did you find yourself looking around at that gal you're interested in, wondering what she's thinking of you right now? She wasn't thinking of you. (laughs) Are you making your to-do list for the week, even as I'm talking? Or are you considering the claims of God through His Word upon your soul? Did your Saturday night set you up for maximum listening capacity this morning? Or can you barely keep your eyes open? As you look around the room at fellow human beings, do you find yourself grateful for their presence here? today? Or are you frustrated that that guy with the blimp head is sitting in front of you again and you can't see? Or that she has a baby and you don't? Or that she has that nicely shaped body and you don't? In other words, is there envy? Even as we sit in church, Our hearts can become like that outer court of the temple. We can be so caught up in the business of self-concern that we fail to worship God for who He truly is. Church, what, what we think about God will be what is displayed as we worship God. It, it's, it's a 100% every single time, revealer that how we worship is a reflection of how we feel about God. All the chaos in the church and in our hearts can cause us to miss out on communion with Christ. So church, remember who we're here for. We don't get together mainly for us as much as we need it. We'll get together mainly for Him. At the end of the day, church is about God. The Bible is about God. 
your life and my life are about God. And the degree to which we resist that will be the degree to which we find ourselves in turmoil. And the degree to which we embrace that will be the degree to which we have peace, even in the storms of life, because we're made for Him. We get together for God. Now, as you look closely at this latter part of John 2, and this is a bit of inference, but it seems to me that most people who were there in those outer courts didn't seem to have a problem with what Jesus did. The the animal owners are not spoken of. The money changers' reaction isn't there. There's no one saying, hey Jesus, you're interrupting my prayer. It seems that only one group of people were bothered. Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Most every commentator I read said that this is without a doubt the the temple authorities, the, the priests, their helpers, the people on the job, if you will. So these leaders wanted to know why Jesus thought he had the authority to do what he did. They understood Jesus to be making a, a messianic claim, but on what grounds? In other words, Jesus, show me your resume for what you're doing, because we don't even know who you are. Now, the key here is that word sign. A bunch of us in the room probably watched football yesterday or slept to football, and you probably saw people in the stands holding up signs. Those aren't the signs John's talking about. The word sign in the Gospel of John is a key word. In some ways, the whole book is organized around that word. It comes up 20 times. For John, a sign was a visible, demonstrative, powerful demonstration of the power of God. And they were used in particular ways. These were the avenues through which, in part, Jesus showed something of his character, of his authority, of his power, that he came from God, that he was, in fact, God himself, and that he was here on a mission from God. And so they ask him, well, what are, your, what are your credentials for doing this? Which just quickly as an aside, you've got to ask, and if, you're, if you don't ask this question, then you're not interacting with non-believers very much in a meaningful way. Why don't we see signs today? Why, why do there seem to be far fewer supernatural things happening than what we read about in the Gospels? I, th- I think that's an incredibly fair question. We, we as a church would believe that the Scriptures tell us God hasn't ceased doing signs and wonders, that He is still 
ever much able. That the same power present in John 2 is present here in this room now. Turn it off, please. Thank you. So why don't we see that? It's not because it can't happen. It's perhaps because, maybe one reason to consider, is the Gospels record an incredibly unique little window in human history. A a window in which God himself was walking around on earth in a body. And in which from that moment on, for the rest of humanity's existence, Someone can be saved, can be made right with God only through a conscious knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and a turning to Him. And so there had to, in that moment, be absolutely no question, although there was lots of debate, of course, is this Jesus who He claims to be? And so signs were of particular importance then. Now, today, the the power of God is harnessed mainly, not in water-to-wine miracles, but in the very Word of God, doing its power of changing the human heart. God can still speak and heal. I'd take a miracle. How about you? And it's fine to pray for that. But what you don't want to do is take on the posture of these temple authorities in which they, from a posture of arrogance, demand a sign. God's good regardless of if He heals. And in the end, He will, in fact, heal all of His people. Now, what was Jesus' response to their arrogant demand? Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and uh, in uh, three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Remember what the temple represented. This was the, the meeting place between God and people. That is, in fact, who Jesus is. It is on Jesus and in Jesus and through Jesus that people meet with God. And so when he said, uh, you, don't, uh, you don't need a sign, here's what's going to happen. They scoffed in response. This temple was so huge It had taken almost five decades to build it. And yet Jesus was not talking about that. He was talking about himself. Because just a short walk from this temple is a place called Golgotha, where Jesus was led out carrying a crossbeam on his shoulders and upon which he died. That spot's still there. It is an Arab bus stop. But on that hill, 
the perfect sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice. The sacrifice that can actually take away your sin forever was offered. You see, Jesus was foretelling his death and resurrection. Jesus served as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Jesus, in fact, fulfilled the very temple in which he said these words. Jesus, in other words, was destroyed, so you don't have to be. He was raised that you would be. Jesus is the true and better temple, for it is on Him, in Him, through Him, that you are welcomed into the very throne room of God. Brother or sister, do you suffer from hurriedness of soul? Do you find that when there is a quiet moment that you seemingly are unable to concentrate on God? Do you find that if you're not doing this with your phone, that if there's a quiet moment, the thoughts that begin to fill your minds are actually rather frightening? Are you taking Jesus for granted? Has church become rote? Are you bored with God? God deserves sincere and unhindered worship. And I'm here today with the great news that that is possible. It's possible through Jesus Christ. You see, not only did he become your substitute, Christian, he's also your life. And he is ever thankfully, joyfully worshiping the Father. And so Christ in you can change you. You can become a true, genuine worshiper. It is that for which you were created. If you have lost your awe of God, and that is something critically important to repent of today, to turn from a coldness of heart from Him and to ask Him with His grace and tenderness and mercy to revive you back to a rightful recognition of Him. God will be faithful to give you a fresh start, Christian. Now, non-Christians in the room, for time's sake, allow me to just be blunt. The Bible gives you two options. You can spend all of eternity apart from God in a real place of torment forever. Or 
you cannot pay the penalty for what you've done. Jesus can pay it for you. And you can be welcomed into a new life with a master who loves you perfectly and who will transform you little by little into the person that God has designed you to be. Those are your choices. It all comes down to what do you do with Jesus? Do you believe that he came and died and rose again? In your place, is alive and well now. Yes, you have questions, but, but do you believe that? That's the heart of the Christian faith. If you do, you can turn from sin and turn to him. And we will rejoice with you. Will you pray with me? God, this is not an easy, light, touchy-feely sermon. Yet this is who Jesus is. So I would pray quite simply that in your power you would take your word and now convict us, encourage us, change us, lift our eyes off of ourselves onto you. You are worthy of all worship and praise, and it is in Christ that we can become genuine worshipers. Help us. Help us. Transform us. We want to be people in whom you are well pleased because of what Christ has done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.